Okay, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've been doing discussions in Matthew, and I've been doing a section then Q&A and a section in Q&A. The last couple of weeks, we went back to our old method of doing the questions at the end uh, because we're in a section where we will get bogged down if we don't uh, go through that. So last week, we looked at the signs of the Lord's coming. We saw that the signs were a great tribulation, a persecution where all the nations would hate uh, the disciples that would be set off by the abomination of desolation, that uh, event in the temple where, the, where he is in the holy place claiming to be God and above all that is holy. Uh, and a great falling away, a defection, if you will, from the faith by many believers. Jesus says that because uh, lawlessness abounds, lack of Torah, uh, the love of many shall wax cold, and brother will betray brother to death. He then tells his disciples not to be tricked by those who claim to know where the Lord is. He's here in the secret place. He's out in the desert um, because he says that his coming will be visible to all. <clears throat> he also says that uh, when you uh, understand that the fig tree puts forth its leaves nearing summer, so in the same way these signs will give the awareness that the Lord's coming is near. Um, so we have that foundation, and then he begins to do what I call parables of his coming, and that's where we are today. We're going to pick up in Matthew 24 at verse 36 and go through Matthew uh, 25, because these, uh, the context of all of these parables is his second coming as he is explaining it to his disciples. These verses tend to get pulled out of context, and because they're parables, they get used in other uh, contexts and other meanings and other applications. I'm not completely convinced that that's inappropriate, but it loses the intentional uh, meaning of the position that the text is in. So, as we pick up in verse uh, 36... Jesus says, but of that day, meaning the day of his coming and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For as the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will, left, will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Now, I want to talk about these verses because these verses are used commonly for this secret rapture theology that one day we'll just all disappear and uh, one is taken and one's left behind. And the whole behind, left behind notion is there. If you read the context of this, it is not talking about that. It's referring to the days of Noah, that while Noah is preparing the ark and preparing his family to escape the judgment that is coming, 
he preaches and proclaims for almost a hundred years with no converts. That's got to be frustrating. But the people around him are eating and drinking and getting married and giving their children in marriage. They're just living their normal lives and they don't know what God is doing until the judgment comes and takes them all away. So the being taken away is not a good thing here. The being taken away is taken away in judgment. If you think about it, Noah and his family got on the ark. The judgment came. The flood came. Took away all the other people and left them there. In this biblical context, you want to be left behind. Because those who are taken are taken in judgment. And those who are left will enter into the kingdom. And so it's really important we don't pull these verses out of context in that framework. Now in the context of that, because he's talking of those who do not believe, who will be taken away, he then says these words. Uh, Therefore be on the alert, you do not know which day the Lord is coming, verse 43, but be sure of this. That if the head of house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Now he's beginning to transition this notion that obviously the world is not going to know he's coming, and therefore when he comes he will do what he wills, with the world, and they will not get it. If they had paid attention, they'd have been ready for his coming and tried to prevent what's going on. So that context now transitions to him talking directly to his disciples. So he says, for this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. In other words, even believers can be misled about this. Now watch these next words. This is very important. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master will put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I believe this is in reference to the disciples. This is a warning to the leadership of the community of the faithful. Jesus has recently in these texts talked about the hypocrisy of the uh, Pharisaic leadership and I think he's referring here to the leadership. These disciples are supposed to be those who will care for God's people. And he gives two scenarios. You have a servant who is going to uh, be faithful because he doesn't know when his master is coming back and he is caring for the other disciples and he is ministering appropriately in that context and he will then be put in charge 
of his master's house in his kingdom at the time that comes. But if that servant says, you know, it's going to be a long time before the Lord's back. And so he begins to beat his fellow servants. In other words, instead of loving the brethren, he begins to hate and abuse the brethren. And he begins to live a life of drunkenness with those who live only for themselves. Then the Lord will come when he's not expecting him. And he says he will give him his portion with Uh, I want to get the words exactly right here. Um, He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. That should trigger us back to the hypocrites are those who say but don't do. These are, I think, the, the religious leadership that are supposed to be caring for the sheep, but they're caring for themselves. And he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that phrase is used by Jesus of what the condition of those who are in Gehenna, in the lake of fire. In other words, he says these so-called servants of God will end up being put in uh, hell. I think that's a scary thing. There's a tendency to think if your leadership and your call of God and all this kind of stuff, and of course those are always self-pronouncements, uh, that you are you are just going to be blessed by God because after all you surrendered. But obedience is what is needed in these servants, and they need to be prepared because we don't know when the Lord is coming. Now, in the next chapter, he goes into uh, a different context. And I think this one also is talking about the second coming and being prepared for it. But he uses a different analogy. Here he says, the kingdom of heaven will be compared (coughs) to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent or wise. When the foolish ones took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent ones took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now when the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. And at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes, come out to meet him. Then the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. And the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers, at midnight, that's interesting, and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the doors were shut. Later the other virgins also came and said, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he said, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Now these are all giving us the same warning. And the warning is, we should live a life in preparation of the second coming, even though it is delayed. I'm thinking of the statement made in the principles of Judaism that we sometimes use in our confessions. Uh, I believe with a complete faith in the coming of the Messiah. And though he should delay, I will believe, right? This idea of being prepared, this idea of living towards the kingdom instead of towards the world is really what the call to discipleship is and the gospel. I am working on a brief article about the danger of thinking that the gospel is sent into the world 
to change the world. If it's like the days of Noah, and if it's as these texts are saying, the gospel has no intent of changing the world. It is not a change agent that's going to go in and transform the world, though that has been the historical view of much of the church. It is actually a calling to a lifeboat, like the the Ark of Noah, saying, come out of the world, it is going to be destroyed, come and live in kingdom principles in anticipation of the kingdom to come. In other words, the gospel is not intended to change the world. It's intended to warn those who are of faith to come out of that into the kingdom of the Son in anticipation of the kingdom and the marriage supper that will happen at that time. Now what's going on here is the picture of a wedding. In a Jewish wedding, and you guys know this better than than many, there's a betrothal. At the betrothal, the couple is now married, but they do not live together. The woman lives with her father's house. The man goes to prepare the home that they will live in. When he prepares the place for them, he will come and receive her to himself, that where he is, she may be. Those words may echo for you in the the Lord's statement. So what happens then is they don't know when he's going to be done, and they don't know when he's coming. And so when he comes, they yell, the bridegroom comes, they then prepare, they are prepared because they don't know when he's coming, they then come and respond, and they light the way for him to come, and there will be the wedding supper, and all of that takes place. So Jesus uses that analogy. There are the virgins who are prepared to be part of the wedding party, they have oil lamps, And the ones that are smart go, I don't know when he's coming. So I have oil in my lamp, but I need some extra oil, so I'm prepared for a longer duration. And the foolish ones say, I got my lamp, I got my oil, I'm okay. Kind of in the way we do. I've said the magic words, I've got my salvation, I'll be okay. And then what happens is, he does delay. And as he delays, that oil is burning in those lamps. And then, all of a sudden, there's a shout that he's coming. And the wise ones look at their lamps, see that there's less oil, pour more oil in, and keep them burning. The other ones go, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, right? They're singing that. And they say, give us some of your oil, you're prepared, share with us. And they say, we don't have enough for you. And so while they're going to get prepared when they should have already been prepared, the Lord comes, or the bridegroom comes, and when he comes, they shut in and they begin having the marriage supper. They finally get their act together, and they come and knock on the door and say, hey, let us in, and he says, I don't know you. That again is a statement. Jesus says, many will call me Lord, Lord, but they don't do what I say. And in that day, they will say, Lord, we did this, and we did that, and we did this. And he said, I didn't ask you to do that. I don't know you. You didn't do what I asked you to do. You did what everybody was telling you I was asking you to do. So this warning is a major warning for us in this context. And, in, and it's something we need, to, we need to heed. Now, we pick up then uh, one more parable. Uh, and this one picks up at verse... 
14. This is just like a man who goes on a journey and calls his slaves and entrusts his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received five talents <coughs> went and traded with them and gained five more talents. And in the same way, the one who had received two gained two more. When he received the one talent, the one who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received five talents brought five more, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who received two came and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And the master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. Because I didn't want to lose it, you know. So see, here's what you have. And his master said, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have at least received the money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For lo, everyone who has, more shall be given, and he, who ha and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out this worthless slave into outer darkness, in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now again, we have a very difficult parable in a culture and a context where the gospel is, believe in Jesus, say these words, and you can be on layaway till the rapture. As opposed to, save yourself from this ungodly generation. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and enter into the kingdom through obedience and trust that I will provide on that journey. That's a very different gospel. And here, what's happening is, there is a stewardship of what we have been given in this life. The stewardship is towards the kingdom to come, not this world. We're not trying to be relevant to this world. We're not trying to impress this world. We're not trying to change this world. That's not what this is about. We're begging people to see the darkness that is there and come to the light and Go with us in that process. And our resources given to us by the Lord are for that purpose. And those who have much and are good stewards will receive much in the kingdom. And those who sit on it, even though they believe, and just let it sit, because they're either busy uh, doing their own thing, or they just don't care. Again, we have this statement where he says that there will be uh, outer darkness into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a definition of the abyss or 
the lake of fire. Again, he is not talking to unbelievers, but to those who are claiming to be disciples and servants of the Lord. Now we reach a, uh, a text that is uh, much more difficult. Uh, difficult for two reasons. One, it's not actually a parable. And the second one is, it's an explanation that has been used in a context that we're all familiar with, that we won't see it in this context. So we're going to pick it up at verse uh, 31 um, and, uh, and following. He says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Now, you cannot miss what that's talking about. If this is not the kingdom to come, I don't know what it is. The Lord will come in His glory with ten thousands of His saints. The dead will be raised. And the Lord will rule out of Jerusalem over the nations. And He will sit on the glorious throne. That throne is the throne of David over the house of Jacob and over the nations. Then He says, All the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So what shepherds used to do is they would bring the sheep over on one side and bring the goats over on the other side, making that kind of separation. And that's what he will do. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. I want you to catch, he's talking to the nations, and he's talking about his brothers. Okay? Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they themselves will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger, naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, you guys are very familiar with this text. This text is used regularly and constantly for the purpose of taking care of the poor. And I have no doubt that that could be an extension of this text. 
But it is not what the text is talking about. Now, there are three possible understandings of this text. And it depends on what you mean by the nations and by the king's brothers. So what is the most common explanation? That the nations are just people, and the least of the king's brothers are the poor and the imprisoned and the sick and the naked and the hungry. And this is used to raise money to argue for social justice. Now, I think all of that, caring for the poor, caring for those in prison, caring for the sick, all can be addressed by the commandments found in the Torah. So don't hear me as saying we should not do that. What I'm saying is, that's not what's being talked about here. You follow me? It's very important, because I don't want you to go out and say, you know, Dr. Stokes doesn't think we should care for the poor, we should take care of the sick, and if we don't know them, forget them, right? That is not true. That you are to love the stranger, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? The one who I come across who is in need. So I, I think I've got that one clear, all right? That's the most common interpretation. There is another interpretation that I think is more accurate to the strictness of this context. Jesus talking to his disciples. His disciples are not Baptists, Methodists, Episcopal, or Catholics. They're Jews, right? They know to take care of the stranger and the poor. But he doesn't say, I will gather you and judge you. He says, I will gather the ethnics. The nations is how it's translated here. So if the nations here are the Gentiles, what it says is when he gathers up his kingdom, he will gather the Gentiles. Remember, he's not just going to sit over the throne of the tribes of Israel, but he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will gather the nations together, the Gentiles, as distinct from the Jews who are the king's brothers. He came to be made like his brothers. Jesus is the king of the Jews. You with me? Then this judgment is based on how Gentiles treat Jews in their dispersion. That has some very significant implications. Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Israel, I sent you into Egypt, and they went too far, and I will now punish them. So God's separation of Israel among the nations is not freedom for the nations to abuse Israel. And I believe that at the center of this text is a judgment of the nations in how they treat Israel in its diaspora. Are they naked? Are they hungry? Are they in prison? Often they're naked, hungry, and in prison because of the treatment of the Gentiles. Okay? Now, remember that eternal life and eternal punishment is placed in these categories of the goats and the sheep. There's no mention of the gospel in this context. So if the gospel calls not only Jews back to the Lord, but it calls Gentiles to the Lord, 
then there is an extension of this that I think is appropriate. The nations here are the Gentiles who don't believe. As distinct from uh, Gentiles who do believe. Because Jesus said, Who is my mother? Who is my brother and my sister? Those who hear the word of God and keep it. So here the judgment is about how the nations treat observant Jews and practicing Christians. In other words, how are believers treated in various countries? Here the judgment then is not about how we treat others. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to love the stranger. Those commandments are clear. This is how are those who don't know God treating those who know God. Now this is not a work salvation. This is not that the nations are saved. I believe that probably in the kingdom, the Lord is going to decide what nations will be in that kingdom period. Um, I think that Germany's got some serious concerns in that judgment. And so does America. I think America is going to have to answer to God for what we did to our African brothers and sisters in the history of this country. And I think that some of that same prejudice and racism and anti-Semitic activity has happened to Jews in this country, and America will have to answer for that as well. Um, So how God does that, I'll let the Lord do that. But I think that that's more what these texts are talking about. Because if you treat a righteous person, now understand we're talking about a righteousness by faith and a struggle to, to work out that salvation in fear and trembling towards obedience, that will make you different from the world. And if the world sees that and says that's coming from God, let men see your light, that men may glorify your Father in heaven, and they do that, they are actually not earning salvation, but they are responding in a very rudimentary faith, by which they may come all the way to a profession of faith. So I think these texts are talking about a very different notion. We seem to overlay them with a simplistic gospel message, and they lose their power. The overwhelming message in these parables and in these chapters are to those who claim to know God. Those who prepare wisely and act as good stewards of the kingdom to come will be rewarded. And those who wait and ignore and abuse their fellow believers or their fellow professors uh, will be cut off. And this follows the Sermon on the Mount. For Jesus said, I have not come to remove the Torah... I have come to bring it into full operation. And the one who builds his life on my words will endure the storm and the trouble because he builds his house on a rock. But the one who doesn't and builds it on the sand, when that storm comes, he will be destroyed. So our goal at the Disciple Center is to be wise in preparing ourselves, our children, and our converts For the kingdom of God. 
to fight against those who would do harm to the brothers of the Lord, and that is to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile who believes, and to be good stewards of the resources that God has given us. We must see the gospel as a calling out of the world for the purpose of preparing for the kingdom to come, rather than as a change agent in the world which will draw us further and further into the world trying to change it and what it ultimately does is it changes us. I've talked about this before but this is the problem of the seeker-friendly approach to Christianity. I'm reading a lot of things where people are saying doesn't matter how bad you are you should go to church and I think what you should uh, the, the gospel needs to go to people who are out there And bring them in to a group that is struggling not to be that way. Right? As we prepare for the kingdom to come. The danger here is that if we make the congregation fully comfortable and acceptable to those who don't know God. We are becoming like them. They will never become like us. And therefore the purpose of our gathering is to encourage one another As we see the day approaching unto love and good works. And to do that, to secure that for our children and grandchildren. As the darkness becomes darker and darker. And the flood comes and takes them all away. Let's pray.